You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Let us pray. Gracious and heavenly Father, our great provision in the wilderness called life, pray, Father, that you would continue to be our peace, that you would continue to be our strength, that you would continue to be our courage as we face the days that are ahead. And we pray, O most gracious Father, that you would speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. And uh, a warm welcome. Thank you uh, once again for having me here uh, to the Advent. I was uh, telling somebody earlier, uh, you guys take really great care of the preachers. The censure does not lie. And so anyway, I feel like I'm bursting out. I thought that was hilarious. But anyway, um, uh, I feel like I'm bursting out of my, uh, my cassock this week. So, um, but, um, so thank God I'll get back to New York where they take Lent seriously. But, uh, <laughs> so, but uh, this week, you know, I've um, been preaching through the book of Exodus, uh, a 40-year Lenten experience of Israel in the wilderness. And if you remember the first day, I kind of addressed the idea of the earthiness of God, that God is not otherworldly, uh, but he is earthy. And he is present in the midst of normal means. And how the, uh, the Red Sea and Israel going through God, parting the land, separating the sea from the land and bringing Israel up, um, is a, uh, is, we're a new community, a new community. God's community was established. And we, going through those same waters of the baptism, are being led uh, to a new land and are made a new people. And then last week we talked about that first primal concern that Israel faced in the the wilderness, hunger, and how Christ himself is the true manna from heaven, and he is our bread that quenches and meets that deep hunger. Today we're going to take a look at Exodus chapter 17, and we're going to be looking at another primal concern that every human has to deal with, thirst, thirst. And we're going to see how God meets their needs uh, and how he meets our needs as well. So if you will, turn with me to Exodus chapter 17. And I'm going to begin at the first verse. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of, of Sin by stages, according to the commandments of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim, But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why do you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock of Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? 
here ends the reading. Well, as I said, we're in chapter 17. And the people of Israel are thirsty. They are thirsty and they are upset once again with Moses. And they are upset with God. And as they pick their teeth with quail bones, you know, God's provision, they offer that familiar gripe gripe that we have heard over the last couple of days. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt? To kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? If you notice in chapter 17, the language here uh, prior to 15 and 16 has escalated from a complaint to quarrel, which in Hebrew represents legal language. And the result is, uh, typically, the consequences of this legal language, as uh, Moses says, is stoning. They are about to kill Moses. Thirst. I don't know if you've ever been really, really thirsty. But thirst is an awful, awful thing. I remember one time, we go to the Catskills every summer to go hiking, and um, there is uh, this thing in the Catskills called the Tom Cole Trail, which essentially walks along um, the, uh, the Hudson River Valley, and you can see the views of the Hudson and Albany to the north and New York uh, to the south, and you can see Massachusetts and Vermont to the east and um, all the way over to Pennsylvania sometimes if you look to the south, uh, southwest. But it's this wonderful thing. However, I misunderstood the map, and I, fa- I thought we were just going to be walking on this trail. I failed to realize that we would go from uh, essentially 1,500 feet to uh, 4,400 six times, and I had like a bottle of water, and uh, by the end, I mean, I was going insane, and I was asking hikers along the trail if I could just, you know, have a drink, but we are talking about a maddening thirst, and so it's really easy for these people to write, it's really easy for us to write this off, just kind of a thirst, but this is maddening. This is critical. This is children, uh, you know, uh, with with white stuff around their lips. They are thirsty. However, what is going on here in this moment with Israel is so much more than just the physical. This is something we as humans face every day. It's a spiritual thirst. This thirst which arises out of unbelief. God has cared for them. He's just brought quail all day long and manna. And they still don't believe. And God has provided for us every step of the way. And we have this thirst that just can't seem to be quenched, which arises from unbelief. And that's the opposite of faith, is unbelief. And the fruit of unbelief is always fear. And one of the fruits of fear is to put God to the test. Now, it's one thing to bring your cares and concerns, your fears, all manners of situations to the Lord. But it's another thing to test him. What does testing look like? Well, it looks like typically like this. If you are God, then fix it. You know? I mean, if God was really God, why would there be all this suffering in the world? It's interesting when Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, he rebuffs the devil by appealing to the scriptures. 
specifically going back to the book of Deuteronomy, the book that summarizes the lessons that God taught the Israelites in the book of Exodus during their wilderness sojourn. If you remember when uh, Satan takes Jesus to the top of the temple, and he says, listen, if you really, if you really are the Son of God, uh, throw yourself off this temple because he'll send his angels uh, to save you. And Jesus responds. What does he, how does he respond to that temptation? He says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. A quote from Deuteronomy, which if you read the entire verse, continues, as you did at Massa. Hearkening to this very moment, In the book of Exodus, if you really are God, then save us. If you really are God, then save my mom. If you really are God, then save my job. If you really are God, then watch over my daughter in this terrible situation. It is, it can come across very pious, but it is wicked. Because it puts us in the place of God. Putting God to the test. And this is my first point. What Israel is saying here is, and we say it all the time, I need visible proof before I believe you're really God. Never mind there's quail running all over the place. There's manna all over the place. See, there is a reason, and this is one of the themes in chapters 15, 16, and 17. There is a reason unbelief is a theme in these chapters. There is a reason. And the reason is is that we are being taught how notoriously short the human memory actually is when it comes to recalling God's tremendous provision. I mean, the quail will be right there in your lap. If you're really God, provide for me. We are being taught that when we are desperate, Our natural inclination as humans is not to faith, but to unbelief. This is why faith is a gift, because our natural inclination is to unbelief. And unbelief, as we've seen in the book of Exodus and as we continue to read, leads us to quarrel with one another. And it leads us even to something more sinister, and that is to put us in the place of God as opposed to bringing our cares and concerns before him. Instead, we'd rather force his hand in order to make your so-called belief contingent upon some sort of divine demonstration. No. Our belief is created out of what God has already said and done. Now, in no way is this to downplay the reality of fear and how gripping it can be. Our fears like Israel, our traumas are real. The world is not an easy place to be a human, let alone a follower of Jesus, a Christian. The pressures, the temptations, seriously, the opposition is very real. I was uh, talking to Craig this morning over coffee about um, an Italian movie that I really love uh, called uh, by a guy named Pasolini. And at the end of this movie, there's a a Catholic priest and he's in the room with a communist. And they have all been working together to try and overthrow Mussolini. 
At the end of the scene, uh, the, uh, the, um, the, the communist is about to be dragged off, and the priest looks at him and says, we're with you in this fight, and we're all in this together. And as he's being dragged off, the communist looks at the priest and says, listen, when this is all said and done, we're coming for you next. I mean, the world is not interested in friendship with the true church where the gospel is preached. Opposition to this message is real. And currently, I think in all of our iterations, we can feel this wilderness journey called life acutely, especially as we've wandered through 2020 and now into 2021. And while we may not cry out for bread and water, we grumble. We quarrel in these moments of distrust, impatience, injustice. We quarrel because deep down, there is unbelief. Yet God's response to unbelief, and the thing is, is this is the thing, when unbelief is running rampant in your life, what you want to do is take control. That's how you know unbelief is running rampant. You want to take control. Take control of the situation. I've got to navigate the situation. Yet God's response to unbelief is never what we think it should be or would be. This is my second point. Here's the good news for all of us. The way God deals with Israel's fear is to provide more grace. He tells Moses to go ahead of the people with some of the elders of Israel. So this is a public demonstration. Once again, just like the quail and the manna, this is a public demonstration. And take the staff that you struck the Nile with and you turn that into blood. Take that staff, once again, like an instrument that brought about death is now going to be used as an instrument for life. Take it and hit that rock and water shall spring forth so that the people may graciously drink in abundance. And in the midst of their all-consuming fear, God had once again given them cause for great faith. God's response to unbelief is never what we think it should be. It's always grace. Fear is a crippling emotion that in the midst of our journey through this wilderness can cause us to stay put, can cause us to quarrel, and can cause us to even want to return to the Egypts of our life. There's an ancient rabbinic tradition, though, that this rock followed Israel for 40 years. And St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 taps into this tradition and says this rock is a type and shadow of Jesus Christ. So in other words, and this is profound when you really think about it, God provides for you the same way he provided for Israel of old because you and I are the Israel of God as Christians. And in Christ, we have the rock of our salvation right here in our midst by virtue of his marvelous word. And in his word, we hear that he forgives us. In his word, we hear that he feeds us and he refreshes us for the long journey ahead. For as Christ promises, whoever drinks of the water that he gives 
which is himself, well, that person will never be thirsty again, and that water will actually become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And isn't that true when the gospel hits your life? You stop talking about yourself, and you're like, can you believe it? You don't have to do anything for Jesus. Let me tell you about Jesus and everything he's done for me. That water wells up in us to eternal life. And I don't know about you, but in light of this last year, and even in light of 2021, I have especially needed to drink deeply from this well. I have needed the gospel every single day. And anybody telling me about things that I can do to make a difference, I mean, I just want to tune it right off because I am exhausted. I got kids at home all day long. I got a wife at home all day long. I got this going on. I got that going on. And boy, my instinct is to quarrel. But yet the Spirit keeps drawing us back to his word. We're with his gospel. That news of the forgiveness of my sins because of Jesus Christ. I drink deeply. And so do you. And this is my third point. In life, when you want to put God to the test, and believe me, we all do, remember Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. And in Jesus' person and work, God has given you all that you need to see you through this lifetime of wilderness wandering as only a gracious and long-suffering God can do. And so, is the Lord among us or not? In Jesus Christ, the answer is always a resounding yes. God bless you. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, We hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at Advent Birmingham.